it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hey, this is Jason Chaffetz. I'm actually filling in for Brian Kilmeade on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, Brian's like the hardest working guy in television and radio, but not today. He's actually taking a vacation day, much deserved. And so uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, We got a lot to talk about, a lot of fun topics. I mean, they're Everything from Hunter Biden to the economy to Ukraine to Cuomo wanting to return to, to, to Title 42 to unmasking toddlers there in New York City to the Supreme Court justice to midterms to Elon Musk trying to take over Twitter to Madison Cawthorn saying some really strange stuff to Disney and being woke to South Carolina women winning the hoops to the Masters coming up and, of course, the big game KU the University of Kansas versus North Carolina. There's a lot to talk about today, and I'm thrilled to have uh, joining us on the line uh, Sean Duffy, somebody I, I served in Congress once upon a time, and one of the people I got to serve with was Sean Duffy out of Wisconsin. Sean, thanks for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, Jason, you're running, picking through that list of things you're covering today, and it's like, wow, this is a busy news cycle. A lot of things are happening. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. You know, one of the biggest, probably most consequential long-term things, I want to kick things off actually talking about SCOTUS, um, talking about the Supreme Court of the United States. You have uh, a judge who's up for a vote, and uh, look, let's be honest, uh, Easter's on its way, and there's no way the Senate is going to continue to linger into the Easter holiday, even though it's still a little ways away. They like to get home and get some sun and uh, take a little vacation for a few weeks, so I know Schumer will push the agenda and the schedule, but this vote is very, very critical, and it's it's one of the most important things that the the Senate does. And I know there was one Republican senator, I believe, in Susan Collins, who said that she she would vote for uh, the new Supreme Court justice. But what's your take on on her and the consequence and and the testimony that she had given? So you know, listen, is she a radical leftist liberal? Absolutely. Um, and, and frankly, Jason, I'm concerned that Republicans haven't pushed her hard enough. I mean, they're afraid of being called a, a racist. Um, and listen, this is not about race. Um, this is about making sure you have someone who's fit to serve on the court, someone who is going to be faithful to the Constitution, someone who doesn't believe that the Constitution is a living, breathing document, but actually has true meaning. And you're bound by it not by your own political whims. And I don't think she actually shares that view of the Constitution. She's pretty radical. And I think more senators should have explored that with her. Um, They didn't. But again, she's going to affect the court for 30 or 40 years. I believe she's 50 to 51 years old. So, I mean, she's young. And she'll be there a long time, have a huge impact on the court. And again, I, I don't know why conservatives are so concerned about the racist claim when, listen, they've supported Clarence Thomas, and it was the left who's viciously attacked Clarence Thomas, who actually, I mean, if you, there's a, there's a, there's a great show, I think it's on Fox Nation, maybe even be on Netflix, about how he was brought up and the poverty and what he went through to make it to where he's at. He's a remarkable man. Um, But they have no problem going after him. But if you actually question Katanji Jackson, 
you're a racist. We, we can't let that be the narrative any longer. We have to actually be faithful ourselves to the Constitution. And, and to do that, you have to ask tough questions. And I thought uh, Republicans were a little bit timid. Uh, in the yeah, end. one of the one of the ones who's actually asked really tough questions and brings up a good point is, uh, I think, is Senator Ted Cruz out of Texas. He was on Life, Liberty and Levin uh, last night. Uh, let's listen to his take on uh, Judge Jackson cut 23. Well, so I've known Judge Jackson for for 30 years. Uh, we were in law school together. We were both on, on the law review at Harvard. Um, personally speaking, she's very bright. She's very charming. She's very affable. Uh but her substantive record, I mean, you, you used a word a minute ago, radical, and I, and I think that's exactly right. Her, her substantive record is dramatically to the left. And, and if she is confirmed, uh, she will be the most liberal justice of all nine. She'll be the most liberal justice to have ever served on the U.S. Supreme Court. And, and that will have enormous consequences across the entire range. It'll have enormous consequences for free speech. It'll have enormous consequences for religious liberty. It'll have enormous consequences for the Second Amendment. Her record shows a consistent left-wing radical approach. Uh, But I think there was no area where her record was more troubling than crime. Yeah, what what Senator Ted Cruz is getting at um, was her take and her her judgments, her rulings on these sex crimes involving children. These are very, I mean, just sick and disgusting crimes against children. And yet every single time, 100% of the time, one of the most effective things Senator Ted Cruz has put up that chart, gave her below the minimum recommendation on every sex crime that came before her. And I don't understand that. I, I don't understand that either. So I was a prosecutor for 10 years. Um, uh, we did the catch a predator crimes in our home county where people would come in thinking they were going to be able to sexually engage a child who was really a police officer. We did those crimes uh, back you know, in the early 2000s, but also I had child pornography cases. And what I don't think people realize is they think of this as, okay, child pornography, it's bad. You got a, you know, a 13, 12, 14, that's horrible. Some of the pictures in the cases I prosecuted, they're with, you know, a child, a baby that's one and a half years old, two years old. I mean, it is the most disgusting, horrific. I mean, it'll make your I mean, you want to scream. Uh, it is so outrageous. The pictures that you would see. And God bless you that you don't you don't see those. I had to see those because I was prosecuting the case. These are the kind of pictures that many of the defendants had on their laptops that she gave over sentences to. This is I mean, this is sick, sick, the sickest stuff. Um, and, and, and again, she didn't go above the guidelines. She went below the guidelines, giving lighter sentences. So you have sentencing explain, guidelines. Explain go, for is, a second. Is, explain to a second what those guidelines are. What are they there? What, who comes up with them? Why are there? What are these guidelines? No, first of all, I, I like to give judges a lot of discretion. I think that's appropriate. But you have um, a, a sentencing review panel that will say if you have this kind of crime, with this kind of background for a defendant, this is the range that they that this defendant should get. And this is the low range. This is the high range. Right. So it might be they should get a sentence of 10 to 15 years. If there's mitigating factors, it should be 10. If there's aggravating factors, it should be 15, for example. Um, now, they're not bound by it. The, the, the judge that sentenced is not bound by those guidelines. But if they're going to go below the guidelines, they have to cite on the record extraordinary circumstances as to why they're deviating from the guidelines, whether they go down or whether they go up. 
and she continuously went down, especially when there were aggravating circumstances where she would have been warranted in actually going above the guidelines, giving a stiffer sentence than what was recommended uh, by the, the sentencing panel for cases like this. But instead, she went below. And I think it shows that she is she's absolutely been light on crime. And again, I, I want I want judges to be fair. I want them to look at defendants. I want them to look at all the facts and mitigating factors and aggravating factors and give us appropriate sentences that one will um, stop future defendants from committing crimes like this. But um, but uh, number two, protect the public, protect yeah. the community from people like this. And if you have an affinity towards, I mean, one and a half and two year olds, you're a danger to society. You shouldn't be out on the streets because oftentimes people act on those kind of behaviors, and and she um, she she doesn't get it. Well, this this is the concern. The senators are going to vote on this. Um, I I only have literally like a minute, but I want to play a clip from Trey Gowdy. This is our former colleague Trey Gowdy. He was on uh, Sunday night with Trey Gowdy and uh, Sunday night in America with Trey Gowdy talking about Congressman. Madison Cawthorn and some of the crazy stuff he's come up with. Have a listen. So either tell us who you saw doing cocaine and who invited you to sexually explicit parties or admit what we suspect, which is that you made it up. And then ask yourself where fairness and honesty fall on the list of qualities we should be looking for in members of Congress. Again, one of the crazy um, Madison Cawthorn, who I, I, I've said a lot of good things about along the way, but has made this allegation that members of Congress who've been inviting him to these sex parties and to doing cocaine. Um, I've only got 30 seconds. What's your take on this? I don't know about you, Jason, but my wife, after that statement came out, she's like, what? There was sex parties and cocaine? And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I haven't. I I haven't been invited to, nor have I heard rumor of in the cloakroom, which is the room that members will hang out behind the House chamber, of sex parties and cocaine. Listen, this is a bold-faced lie. And what you know is there's no secrets in Washington, D.C. Members of Congress could never get away with behaving like this. It would all leak out. It would all come out. And so when you see a story like this, I think this is puffery coming from Cawthorn, who wants to get a great press hit, wants Jason Chaffetz and Sean Duffy to talk about it. But um, this is this is yeah. absolutely untrue. At least from what I've seen in the House, unless things have changed in the in the three two years that I've been gone, in the three and a half years that you've been gone, um, this is a bold-faced lie. Yeah, I think Trey Gowdy's uh, right as usual. I hate to admit it out loud, but uh, that uh, yeah, you need to either name names or admit that you don't have any names and that it didn't really happen. Uh, Sean Duffy, thank you for so much for joining us. Uh, he's a, a Fox News contributor, proud to serve him with, with, with him in the United States Congress. And uh, thanks so much for uh, joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. We'll be back right after this. Don't go anywhere. Brian Kilmeade will be right back. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details.
a talk show that's real. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, this is Jason Chavitz. I'm filling in for uh, Brian Kilmeade, and um, we're thrilled to have on the line now Congressman Lee Zeldin. He's the congressman out of New York, and uh, just as importantly, he's the Republican gubernatorial candidate for the governor of the great state of New York. And uh, Congressman Lee Zeldin, thanks for joining us today on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, it's great to be with you, Jason. Good morning. There's so much to talk about. There's so there's as I like to say, there's always somebody doing something stupid somewhere. And um, you know, one of the crazy things going on in the state of New York there uh, is what you're dealing with with uh, with ma- mask mandates. This whole idea that I, you know, I saw some video here of of uh, the mayor of New York City. He's dancing. He's grooving. He's at a club. He's not wearing a mask. But toddlers in your state. They're having to wear masks to go to school, I, and, and their older siblings don't, and I just don't understand it. Inside of New York City, kids under the age of five years old showing up at school this morning. You know, We are now in Autism Awareness Month. We had Autism Awareness Day a couple days ago. You have kids on the spectrum learning how to speak. You can't get this time back, and they can't see their teacher's face. The teacher can't see their face. And this is not something that just started, as you know, a couple of weeks ago. This is something that started a couple of years ago. So this really starts taking its toll. Before the weekend, a judge ruled against New York City's mask mandate for our toddlers. And then it was immediately appealed. So there's a stay. And uh, here we are uh, with the mandate still in place. At first, uh, they were talking about possibly lifting the mandate today. But uh, once that judge issued its ruling overturning it, then all of a sudden, and we've seen this with blue state governors, all of a sudden, I don't know if it's pride or ego kicks in, but they say, no, no judge is going to overturn this. This will end on our terms. So, you know what? We're actually going to extend it. So here we are, and it's uh, still in place and no and no end in sight. I, I happen to think that's child abuse. Yeah, it, it goes beyond pale to suggest at this point in time, and they were never one of the targets. They were never one of the ones that was suffering the most, uh, uh, you know, from COVID. There are a lot of populations, the old elderly population, but, you know, it, <laughs> the mayor of New York, I, I wanted to give him a little deference. He was new. He was elected. He was, you know, a former police officer. I thought he'd bring a degree of reasonableness, but listen to this audio clip of him kind of explaining how he was insightful with four-year-olds now I, I happen to be a grandpa at this point in my life and i have a four-year-old granddaughter and we were talking about easter eggs and um hiding them and having fun like that the idea that a mayor would come in and talk to four-year-olds just kind of makes me giggle but listen to his take on this if you were talking to a four-year-old and they're trying to explain why they have to keep their mask on but their their six-year-old brother doesn't what what is your your explanation to that four-year-old? I'm so happy you said that because when I was in Rockaway in the St. Pat's Day Parade, I did just that. A group of parents brought me and talked to their children and explained uh, to them. I told them, you're going to be taking off your mask like your big brothers and sisters are doing now. You know, when, when you have big brothers and sisters, sometimes they do things first to make sure it's safe for you. And those children, they understand it because they trust their parents and they trust their leadership. Congressman uh, Zeldin, what's your take on that? Uh, first off, these parents are apoplectic. 
And we're not just talking about Republicans. This is New York City. We're talking about Democratic parents. We're talking about loyal liberal Democrats who are fed up. I mean, I've seen it. I've been with them outside of City Hall, and these are people who have voted Democrat their entire life. And they're saying to that to that uh, reporter's question, it doesn't make any sense that the kids who are older uh, don't wear masks, that adults aren't wearing masks. And as you pointed out a point ago, is that uh, you know these kids are at the lowest risk by far throughout the entire pandemic of, of, of having serious consequences as a result of COVID and transmissibility and, and so much more. And then, of course, uh, you know, one of the, the uh, arguments that they make in favor of this mandate for kids under five is that, well, they can't get the COVID shot. But, you know, in, in a way, the definition of vaccine has changed because of this, because people testing, uh, people who actually have gotten the COVID vaccine are still testing positive for COVID. So on so many different fronts, and earlier we were talking about the developmental impacts. We could talk about the mental, emotional, physical impacts to these kids. On so many different levels, the science, uh, the common sense says, unmask our toddlers. There's no way that anyone is going to be able to, I don't care how good of a, you know, a debater, how strongly they believe in their argument, no one's going to be able to convince these parents that this is a good idea uh, because the parents do, in fact, actually know better. Yeah, they do actually care. Uh, Congressman, I've only got one minute. Literally, we've got a hard out coming up here. So um, Governor Cuomo wants to actually come back, get his job. Help For those of us that aren't in New York, explain to us what in the world's going on there. He thinks he's been vindicated. Andrew Cuomo has not been vindicated. He's lucky that he hasn't been prosecuted yet. He is, in fact, seriously thinking about running for governor, uh, third-party, independent line. Unselfishly, I think he should be as far removed from power as possible. Selfishly, jump on in. The water's warm because our margin of victory only increases. Yeah, it's um, – I, I got to tell you, New York politics is a crazy place. Uh, look – uh, you, you are a candidate there for governor. Um, <clears throat> you served in the United States Congress. <clears throat> I'm losing my voice. Give us your last 30 seconds here on what is going on with inflation and what do we need to do? Well, it's you know hitting new records, 40-year highs. And instead of trying to spend ourselves out of these fiscal issues that we have, supply chain, inflation, uh, we need to be smarter. I mean, this is at state capitals. Uh, we see it in New York. They actually, their budget was due April 1st. They still haven't passed one yet. We see it with the federal government where they just want to pass trillions of dollar bills after Congressman Zeldin, thank you so much. Lee Zeldin here joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Sorry to cut you off, but we got a hard out. Hang in there with this. We'll be right back. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. When we find people with with uh, hands tied behind their back and decapitated, such things I don't understand, I don't comprehend. The kids who were killed and tortured, so it wasn't enough just to kill. Indeed, this is genocide. The elimination of the whole nation and the people 
we are the citizens of Ukraine. We have more than 100 nationalities. This is about the destruction and extermination of all these nationalities. We are the citizens of Ukraine, and we don't want to be subdued to the policy of Russian Federation. This is the reason we are being destroyed and exterminated. And this is happening in the Europe of the 21st century. So this is the torture of the whole nation. That was uh, via a translator, uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine, talking about the atrocities in a horrific video uh, that we're seeing uh, coming out of Ukraine at the, the hands of what the, the Russian troops have done in terms of rape and it, it, torture. It's just, it's just horrific. Well, joining us on the line now is uh, uh, Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, uh, retired, but now he's a Fox News contributor. He's the former National Security Advisor to Vice President Pence, former Chief of Staff of the National Security Council in the Trump administration, and he's author of War by Other Means, a general in the Trump White House. Uh, Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, thank you so much for joining us today on the Brian Kilmeade Show. When you hear these reports, uh, see the video, uh, hear the president of Ukraine talking about this, um, given your long military history, what, what's your take on this? Yeah, hi, Jason, and thanks for having me. Look, you said it right. It's horrific. Uh, what you're looking at is uh, a complete breakdown of leadership by any military organization. That was something that obviously would never happen in the American military. Look, here's where I come from. Russia has lost its war. And we can't let them win the peace. And what I mean by that is they didn't accomplish their roles and their objectives of subduing Ukraine and changing the government. The main attack on Kiev failed. Uh, they as a nation uh, are becoming a truly pariah nation, and, and the entire world has seen what they've done. And what we need to do is to continue to reinforce Ukraine with MIGs, which President Biden didn't give them, uh, or help Poland give them, S-300s, the air defense. We need to give them sophisticated artillery. We need to support Zelensky. We need to make sure they accept no territorial uh, giving away to, to Russia at all. Because what you're seeing by what the Russians are doing is they're, they're playing true to form. And, and I remember, you know, there's an old comment. So you heard him before, after World War II, never again, never again. Well, you're seeing that in what the, the, the scenes we've seen out of Bucha, which is that's that suburb just northwest of Kiev where a lot of these atrocities are, are, have been observed, and we're seeing reports from it. So so this is just a, a complete breakdown of Russian command and control and leadership, and it's kind of showing their true colors. And the guy responsible, frankly, is is Putin. You know, I'm a big believer in you know, let's talk to our adversaries, make sure we – you know, have have a good discussion with them. But man, once they once they started this war, it's to me, it was, Jason, it's game over. You start the war, fight it to the finish. And I think we should let the Ukrainians keep fighting until they get the, what they want to accomplish. Because clearly, Russia is wounded in this. Their their military has not performed well. We show what kind of nation they are, and we need to keep the sanction on them and punish them until uh, this thing comes to a, a good conclusion, one that we can support with Zelensky. Yeah, it really is stunning to me that the Russia that I think uh, was emblazoned into my mind was one of one that was uh, not a superpower like the United States of America, but that was a a massive country with a fighting force that could go in and have its will. I mean, it seemed like at the beginning of this war, it was just going to be a couple of days and President Zelensky was going to be, you know, no more. But um he seems to be able to communicate, to be able to travel, to be able to uh, engage his forces in a meaningful way. 
and the the Russian military seems disorganized. They, I mean, even some basic military tactics. I'm not a military person, but to line up all your tanks in a row and just be sitting ducks the way they were. I mean, I, I think I could have figured that out. Yeah, you know, they, they here's a couple things. They, one, they've lost their best units. The units they threw at the invasion at the start were their best units, and they were some of them were decimated. Their airborne units that went in towards Kiev were just uh, hammered. Uh, they've also had this lousy strategy. I mean, when you think about it, you, you never – you always, what we call in the military, wait your main effort. They should have gone after Kiev and decapitate the government, and they failed in that because they had all these other supporting attacks up to five that just diluted their efforts. They're not good at combined arms. Yeah, and, and here's where – and I started thinking, what is – you know, Jason, I said, what is causing this? And I sat back and looked at it, and then I really started thinking, okay, what their strategy really is. Their strategy that Gerasimov, their, basically the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, came up with was a defensive strategy against Russia. It was never an offensive strategy. So they don't have the combined arms capability the United States military has, and we're preeminent in it. So they just fail at a lot of levels. They fail strategically, they fail operationally, and clearly they fail tactically. So I, I think this is one of those where I think Russia is looking, and the entire world sees it, as really kind of a poor sister when it comes to the military. And I think at the, the good news for us in that regard is the Chinese are seeing this as well. I think that President Xi is probably regretting that handshake with Putin because they are part of this problem now and they need to own up to it. And uh, we should press them as hard as we're going to be pressing Russia. Yeah. You make a great point about uh, China. Um, sometimes that slips off the, the radar screen, but it is such a pivotal and, and, and important point. Um, I want you to listen to this cut 11. This is uh, Congressman Michael Waltz, who was uh, green beret who has served our nation and is now a Congressman out of Florida. He was on the next revolution last night. Let's listen to him. Oh, no, it's absolutely not over. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the White House keeps brandishing this term strategic defeat uh, uh, for, for Russia. And I think they're getting way ahead of themselves. Uh, this is a repositioning. He's got still has a lot of soldiers, uh, a lot left uh, to, to, to really dive into eastern Ukraine, which, by the way, uh, is the most energy rich, mineral rich uh, parts of the country. If he has that, plus uh, the Black Sea ports, uh, he still has eyes on Odessa. Uh, uh, in the long run, uh, and you had some previous guests talking about how uh, Europe will just snap back into its old habits and its old addiction uh, on Russia gas, Russian gas, then I think in the long run, uh, he still thinks he can come out ahead on this. You know, one of, one of the concerns that I have is uh, the lesson of Georgia, because Russia went into Georgia, took over about 25% of the country, and then it signed some documents and said, oh, we're going to extract ourselves. We need, you know, 30 days or whatever it was to get out. But I've been to that. I've been to Georgia. I've been right up to the to the line where, where the Russians are, and they never retreated. They, they signed documents saying we're retreated, but you put the get the binoculars on like I did and look over there and you could see they were taking what were essentially tents and then making them out of brick and making sure that they were staying there and fortifying them for a long time. The concern is that I think we look at it and say, oh, well, he can't win. He's going to lose. Um, but that, as Congressman Walt said, no, nah, he's probably going to keep part of it and uh, and then settle back and, and reap the rewards of it. Is that the way? Am I looking at that right? 
Yeah, Jason, you, it's a good point. And Congressman Waltz is right. You know, Mike's got a lot of experience in that area, and he's, he's exactly right. But that's what I'm talking about, losing the peace. Win the war, lose the peace, because they've basically hammered the Russians. But we shouldn't get, let them give any ground. We should keep at them and basically, you know, put our hands around their throat. We should continually reinforce Ukraine to force them all out of the territory that they currently hold. And my concern is that what's going to happen, they're like, okay, let's go to negotiations. You've done well. Let's sit around and talk. I wouldn't talk at all. I'd say we will talk when all of your forces are out of Ukraine proper. Until then, we should apply every bit of military, diplomatic, economic pressure we can on the Russians. And that means I would lo- continue, continue to load the Ukrainians up with military assets and keep hammering the Russians. I, I would do that because otherwise you're going to lose the peace. And, I, and Mike is right in that regard. Uh, I wouldn't let them have uh, you know, any territory at all. I think they're going to try and do that, though. I think they've given up on, whole, on their plan to take Kiev. They're clearly not going to go to the west uh, past the Dnieper River because they don't have troops to task the capability or capacity to do it. But they are going to tr- try to hold the east. Mike's right about that. We shouldn't let them do it. Well, let's get uh, – this is uh, the Ukrainian President Zelensky with the translator on Face the Nation this past Sunday on uh, his ability to negotiate with Putin. Cut to. I have to stand for the interests of my country, so it's difficult to say how, after all what has been done, we can have any kind of negotiations with Russia. That's on the personal level. But as a president, I have to do it. We're going to stand until the end, and they have to understand this. So that's the president's take on um, what they can and cannot do. But uh, it'll be fascinating to see, I think, what, if any, the United States' role is in trying to negotiate this and then back it up. Yeah, yeah, Jason, I don't think we have any role. That's my concern. I mean, we should have a role if we had played this correctly and President Biden did not. You know, I remember when President Trump was talking about bringing the Taliban back to Camp David, much like President Carter did with uh, Menachem Begin of Israel and Anwar Sadat of Egypt, put them together for Camp David for 12 days, came out with the Camp David Accords to try something like that. But there's no there's no capacity to do that because of what Biden has done and now Pi- Putin clearly doesn't like him. So you're going to have to find a good interlocutor. And I don't think Erdogan of Turkey is the right one, even Bennett of Israelism. But maybe they should go to somebody like President Nenistu of of Finland, who actually does have a relationship with Putin. They have the same type of thing happen to them in 39 and 40 with the Russo-Finnish war and have somebody like that be able to talk to him. But, but it's going to have to be – it's not tomorrow or a week from Tuesday. It's going to be when the battlefield kind of settles down. But I would not – my concern is there will be a lot of pressure to sell the farm under Zelensky's feet. And, oh, okay, now the war's over. Let's go. Let's not concern about it. Yeah, you lost a little bit of territory. I wouldn't go there at all. I'd play as hard as I could, and Zelensky should, and we should support him in, in, in every effort to do that. How does this play out as the weather starts to warm up? Um, more cameras are able to show the atrocities. I mean, the Russians haven't stopped fighting. They're they're still doing this. There are literally hundreds of thousands of people who are in peril. They they they've been cut off. Supply supply lines are a big question mark on how that was working. And then there's the fog of war. We get, we you know we we only can see what we can see. We don't really know what's going on and have the intelligence that we normally would. Yeah, you know, and it's a, but that's where you apply the maximum pressure. You know, this is where you kind of pick up the phone 
and tell Putin if the uh, if the Soviet Union, the Russians thought Afghanistan was bad, wait till you see Ukraine. And that's what I mean about apply pressure. Yeah, they all have troops there, but just keep killing them. Um, and and you make sure they understand this this is not going to end till you leave. And I would apply every asset we had. I would actually, if I, if I was the president, advising the president, I mean, I would go in and say, unleash our Title 50 assets, the CIA, covert activities, uh, along with MI6 or the Brits and others, and create an opportunity for the Ukrainians to do this and continually kill uh, the, the Russians until they decide to go elsewhere. And so this isn't going to end. As, and Mike was right about this. It's not going to end tomorrow. But you make them pay a terrible, terrible price. And Putin is sooner or later going to have to realize that. And there's always a worry and a concern about escalation. I wouldn't worry about escalation at all. If we worry about escalation, we'll never do anything. Uh, and, and we just need to continually push him because otherwise he's going to keep doing what you're saying. And Mariupol is a good example. He's going to go against Odessa. Uh, because he wants to actually cut off all the sea ac- uh, access to Ukraine. We just can't let him do it. So the fight still goes on, and the fight is not over. Uh, but my concern is somebody wants him now. Uh, well, now that we're at, Kiev's okay. Let's go to discussions. I wouldn't do it at all. Uh, last question. Um, Belarus, their role in all of this, they're obviously complicit with Russia. What sort of consequences, short-term, long-term, should there be for Belarus? Yeah, well, Belarus is, is uh, with Lukashenko, uh, you know, kind of supported uh, Russia. They're kind of the odd man out right now. First of all, their military is not very good at all. It's about 30,000, uh, and, and they're not really well-trained. But they're, they've partnered with uh, Russia, and we should treat them the same way. We should treat them like a pariah state, uh, and we should also, by the way, as an adjunct, we should also tr- start to treat China the same way. If you support Putin, you are part of the problem. You know, that it's not we're not going to separate those who did support or did not support uh, Putin. This is how we're going to look at you. And, and I don't worry about them as a military threat, uh, because if the Ukrainians can handle the Russians, which they've done, I, I know they can handle Belarus. And Belarus has got a big problem. If they look to their west just a little bit, that's called Poland. It's called Lithuania. Uh, and they are facing some tremendous uh, adversaries if they decide to do something, do something really stupid. So I kind of discount them as a military force. At a political alliance, you know, Lukashenko has got a problem because he's uh, he's riding with Putin, and I think it's a big mistake. Yeah, the Poles, uh, they do know how to fight. And the Polish, yeah. uh, the, the country of Poland is one of our greatest allies and assets and um, and, and great partners. And uh, I, hope, uh, I hope we're properly supporting them because I know when President Obama came in and didn't give him the missile defense. That was a real problem. But that's another topic for another day. Uh, Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, a retired. He's a Fox News contributor, former National Security Advisor to Vice President Pence, former Chief of Staff to the National Security Council, and author of War by Other Means, a general in the Trump White House. Uh, general Kellogg, thank you so much for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. We do appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. All right, stick with us. We'll be right back. It's Brian Kilmeade. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Almost Brian Kilmeade. Hey, this is Jason Chaffetz. I'm filling in for Brian. And uh, just a few uh, few thoughts here about what's really affecting all of us. You know, I, I drive a Ford F-150. That just happens to be the car I drive and win it. And uh, just had a little bit, then have uh, half the tank and went to fill it up. And it was just shy of $80. It was absolutely ridiculous. 
that isn't going to change anytime soon. I think we all recognize that. The, the official inflation number was north of 7%. Real wages are down just less than 2%. Uh, we're all feeling it. We're feeling it at the pump. We're feeling it at the gas station. You had Aldi, one of the big uh, uh, retailers out there of uh, groceries and whatnot. Uh, they're going to take a very big price increase. We're all going to feel it. Um, Joe Biden put himself out there as a man with a plan. And uh, I think what we're finding out today is that that man does not have a plan and that uh, we should expect this to not go away anytime soon. Uh, the president put out his budget last week, didn't get a whole lot of attention, but it was trillions of dollars with the largest tax increase in the history of the United States of America. Now, keep in mind, we're $30 trillion in debt. If you spend a million dollars a day every day and did so for 3,000 years, that would be $1 trillion. And we're, 3, 000, it were, we're $30 trillion in debt. We pay about a billion dollars a day in interest on our national debt, and we don't get anything for that. Nothing. And so if you want to get out of this problem, the idea is that we're not just one tax increase away from prosperity in this nation. We have to be able to spend where we need to spend, like on our military and other things that are that are necessities. But we can't be all things to all people. And the Democrats, the way they say it, hey, is just keep spending. Well, guess what? It's that massive government spending where the federal government is spending about one out of every four dollars flowing through our economy that's exacerbating, that's causing this inflation. Too many dollars chasing too few goods. That isn't the way to solve it, ladies and gentlemen. It's going to make it worse. That's why the gas pump and every your food, it's all so expensive. I'm Jason Chaffetz. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Actually, it's uh, Jason Chaffetz, and I'm fired up today. I'm filling in for Brian Kilmeade and uh, honored that he would allow me to take control of this show. And uh, we, we, there's, there's so much going on in the world. It, it, it really is uh, an amazing time. Not only do we have great things happening in the sports world, it's one of my favorite times of the year with the, the culmination of March Madness uh, uh, coming tonight. Uh, the women played theirs out, uh, but the men are playing tonight. That's going to be a great game. The Masters, one of the greatest sporting events. I happen to be a golf fanatic. I love that. But if we look at the world around us and the peril that is out there and the human suffering and the things that we really should care about and need to pay attention to as an American people, um, there's, there's too much going on. And, and it's sad and it doesn't need to be this way. And uh, I'm thrilled to have on with, uh, the show with us somebody I served with in the United States Congress who went on uh, to become the senator from the great state of Oklahoma. We're pleased to have with us Senator James Langford from Oklahoma. Senator, thanks for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. You bet. Glad to be able to do it, Jason. Can you sing the song Oklahoma? You want to just burst into it right now? You know, I already did that. And I wake up. I well, say my prayers. Oh, what a I, yeah, I say morning. Yeah, I say a prayer, and then I do that. And I do it before I have breakfast, as all good Americans, I'm sure, do. I would do. assume. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, but thank you for joining us. I, I have a personal relationship with James Langford in that we sat shoulder to shoulder uh, on the oversight committee uh, right. back in the day. And there's always a lot of stuff going on and stories and funny things that are happening and a chance to get to know each other and their families and everything else. So, Senator, thanks for, for joining us today. I do appreciate it. You bet. Glad to be able to do it, Jason. Um, uh, you have a, a, a pivotal role uh, on that Homeland Security Committee there in the United States Senate. And um, we were able to chat uh, last week a little bit about this off air. But tell us what's going on on the border, because the numbers, you know, that I hear and see are so big and so stunning. It's hard to comprehend how many people and how much human trafficking and how many drugs and everything else that's going on at the border. It's, it's really hard to comprehend it. But try to put it in perspective as to what's really going on at the border. Yeah, let me, let me put some things into context on this. If you take the first 14 months of the Biden administration, the number of people that had illegally crossed our border in the first 14 months of the Biden administration is the same number that attempted to cross in four years under President Trump. The difference was President Trump was trying to turn people around at that. The Biden administration is just saying, y'all come and uh, turning people in. And what's happening with this, What you're hearing people talk about what's called Title 42. Title 42 is something that President Trump put in place in March of 2020 because of the pandemic. It was always intended to be temporary. It was a way to be able to hold back and say, during the pandemic, no one can come in. We're turning everyone around on this, just like they're doing in airplanes of people flying in. They were uh, they were turning around people at the border. What Biden administration, they kept it for a while. They're now looking to lift it now. And the Biden administration's own numbers are that there will be a million additional people that will cross the border illegally just in the first six weeks when they lift this Title 42 authority. And they're not, they've had a year to plan for this, Jason. They know that it's coming, that, that this program is temporary. But in that year, they really planned on how to be able to move people into the country faster rather than how to turn people around at the border more efficiently. So it, it is just that kind of chaos that's happening at the border right now. And the Border Patrol guys, they're working their tail off on it, but they're being treated like hotel check-in staff rather than law enforcement, and they are tired. That, that is a stunning number. I mean, the entire state of Utah, we're about, what, 3,300,000 people, something like that, 3.3 million. I don't know how big Oklahoma is, but a million people. That's on top of the year of record high numbers of people already crossing. That's correct. So we've already crossed uh, 2.3 million people that have illegally crossed just in the time period that Biden's been president. So by the end of this year, the, the number of people illegally crossing the border will exceed the population of Utah, if you want to put that in context. Uh, it, it is absolutely crazy. Let's listen to Ron Klain. He's the White House Chief of Staff. He was on ABC this week uh, uh, over the concerns about ending Title 42. Let's play cut, uh, cut 25. Title 42 isn't an immigration law. It's a public health law. It says you can exclude people uh, who pose a public health risk. The Centers for Disease Control decide uh, how to apply that, and they've decided that sometime in late May, the pandemic will be a place where we can no longer exclude people on a public health rationale. Look, we need to do more work at the border. The president sent an immigration plan to Congress on his first day in office. Uh, we've asked consistently for more resources. We've put in place a new rule that will take effect uh, next month to enable us to process asylum claims more clearly. We also have to be honest about what's happening at the border. We have people showing up with asylum claims from places like Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, uh, Brazil, people fleeing uh, regimes where they are feeling persecution, coming here to make asylum claims. I think the goal for everyone should be to make sure those asylum claims, those claims of people fleeing persecution, 
uh, are heard in a prompt way. Those who deserve protection from persecution get that protection. Those who don't are promptly sent back uh, to where they came from. Uh, unpack that for us, but I could name like a dozen things that he said that were wrong. At <laughs> least a dozen things that are in there. It, they, they've shifted their their uh, messaging here. It used to be that we got to get up to root causes in Central America, why people are fleeing because of poverty coming to the United States. Now it is they're all fleeing from uh, certain death in places like Cuba and Nicaragua and, and Venezuela. And so it's just people coming for asylum in this. They've got to figure out what their message is going to be. What's really happening is last year, literally people from every single country in the world were coming to the United States and coming across the border because they know the border is open and it's the easiest way to be able to come across. Just in January and February, before the war started in Ukraine, 6,500 Russians crossed the border illegally that we know of. Uh, so people are coming from all over the world to be able to come into the United States because of this very porous border. And the way that they've set this up is damaging to Central America. I've talked to the Central American leadership. They're very frustrated with the Biden policy because it's incentivizing people to cross the border. And so their best workers are leaving Central America, which is crushing their economy. And they're coming to the United States to be able to get jobs here. And the Biden administration is letting them all in and handing them a piece of paper and saying six years from now. Now process that. Six years from now, you need to show up for a hearing to be able to question your asylum claim. So all of this, we just need to be able to help people with asylum. Everybody's getting paperwork saying, wait around for six years for your asylum claim hearing. And you can go anywhere you want to in the country to be able to get that hearing and just hang out. And so people are coming in from all over the world. Yeah, you know, in the border, I look at where it was on Election Day and where it was with Donald Trump and the unique relationship that we had uh, working with the Mexican government, the Remain in Mexico policy, catch and release, release was cut off and people were not just caught and released back into the into the homeland but now it's so bad it's a magnet like you said that they're bringing people here they're coming across the border they're moving them to other parts of the country and doing so explicitly with the idea that these millions of people can just go into the the homeland right and then they can come and go anywhere they want and again you go back to the most basic thing about asylum international asylum rules are you go to the next safe country So if they're fleeing and and crossing 13, 15, whatever it is, boundaries to be able to get here, that's not about asylum. That's about economic opportunity. If you want economic opportunity in the United States, we're all in. But there's a legal process to be able to do that. A million people a year legally come to the United States. We celebrate those folks who legally come to the United States from all over the world and do immigration. What we have a problem with is illegal immigration, and I don't see see an issue with that. I think that's those are I've long said that the people we're failing are the people that are doing it legally and lawfully. And they I think we have a moral high ground and that we should spend more time, more resources working with them. But that's another million people on top of that. A million people that are coming legally and lawfully into the United States uh, uh, of America. And it is still stunning to me that Joe Biden in his 50 or some odd years in in public office and as the president, as a senator, has never been to the border. And Kamala Harris going down there, oh, boy, that solved it in a hurry, didn't it? (laughs) It did. I think people forget Vice President Biden was assigned by President Obama to deal with root causes of (laughs) migration uh, while he was vice president. And now he just hands that over to Kamala Harris and says, okay, I didn't fix it. You fix it. And she's done the same thing that he did when he was vice president, like, yeah, not my deal, and has walked away from it. So it's pretty remarkable just to be able to see the journey on this. 
the far, far left, they're obsessed with open borders. And this administration has chaos on the border that they know chaos is bad. The American people don't like chaos on the border. So their focus is when people illegally cross, keep the cameras away, keep people moving into the interior of the country, and maybe no one will figure out what's going on. But that has epically failed because people see the problem and know it, whether it's in school systems across the country, whether it's in employment situations where people are competing with people here that are illegally present, whether it's drugs moving. I did a telephone town hall last week, and I had a mom that was on the call that she just, in the middle of the call, said, I'm really concerned about what's happening at the border. My son died of a fentanyl overdose last year, and I know that came through Mexico. People get it what's actually going on at this point. And so this is something that needs to be addressed. They just fa- have failed to do. We're talking with Senator James Langford. I hope you stay with us uh, through the commercial break because I want to get They're your take to. on the next Supreme Court justice, uh, the vote that's coming up uh, more with the Brian Kilmeade Show right after this. Stay with us. You're with Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Again, just to prove the complicity of the media, the Washington Post says, you know, there's no evidence that Joe Biden's implicated in this. That's some pretty strong evidence. That's a contemporaneous email that's been verified that big guy was Joe Biden. There's plenty of uh, evidence that Joe Biden met because there are photographs of him meeting with uh, Hunter Biden's business partners. He repeatedly lied to the American public that he said he never, ever discussed yeah. Uh, Hunter Biden's overseas business uh, deals with Hunter. Well, no, he just had, he was just photographed with his business partners. So if he's lying, uh, bold-faced lying, that, again, is pretty good evidence that something is amiss here. That was uh, Senator Ron Johnson. He was on Sunday Morning Futures with Maria Bartiromo talking about the entanglement between Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. We're joined uh, by Senator James Langford of Oklahoma. Senator, thanks so much for joining us. Um, the media has suddenly found the reality that this laptop is real and that Hunter Biden was actually doing something. It's amazing how a year, year and a half later, after some of us here at Fox News and the New York Post have been talking about that suddenly they're starting to realize and wake up. And I tend to think that there might be a reason for that. What's your take? You know what? We're trying to figure out all of the goals from the uh, liberal media on this. But it was amazing to me. If you go back before the election, Washington Post, everyone else was saying, oh, no, no, this is just Russian propaganda. This is a Russian plant. There's no way that this could be all the details. Uh, This could be Hunter Biden's laptop. This is all stuff that's made up. Look away, look away, look away. And now they're finally having to come to a position of, okay, we were wrong. Uh, There's a lot of serious, ugly, nasty stuff that's in this. And right now, Hunter Biden is aggressively trying to pay back taxes to say, hey, I understand I'm going to be challenged on tax issues because I was hitting all, hit, hiding all his income as well. So again, nothing to see here. Move along. I'm going to pay my back taxes and to be able to keep going after I got caught. Uh, now the challenge is going to be for Merrick Garland, whether this is going to be a special counsel that's actually developed because we're talking family members of the president, the president himself, uh, when uh, what kind of influence he had, the statements that he made saying never met with him to have no idea. And we know that's not true. Uh, so this is a moment to be able to find out if Merrick Garland is going to actually stand for justice or if it's about just protecting the president from the Department of Justice. 
So you, you're in favor of a special counsel in this situation? I am. We're approaching that moment. There's so much that's coming out on this. Uh, there'll be congressional hearings after Republicans actually retake the House and the Senate. Clearly, congressional Democrats are going to continue to be able to protect the president. They don't want to discuss this at all. But when the details are coming out in liberal media, even at this point, we've got to get all the facts on the table and to find out what are the details here. Yeah, the certainty with which the media and the White House officials say that, oh, Joe Biden wasn't involved at all. Move along. I mean, I, 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 between China and Ukraine, Mexico, Romania. Romania is one of the worst situations out there where Louis Free, the former FBI director, as a thank you to Hunter Biden for funneling business to him to help this, what was ended up being a, a convicted uh, person in Romania for bribery, as a thank you, put $100,000 into the grandkids' account for Joe Biden and did it to say, hey, this is the normal course of business. This is the thank you for the business that you gave us, and I hope Joe Biden enjoys uh, the money that his grandkids got. I mean, it's there in black and white. You could go and investigate and find the flow of money. It just seems like there's so much there that really should be pursued, and this is fundamentally wrong. Yeah, it is. Jason, I, has no one ever sent $100,000 to, to your grandkids and said, thank you so much, Jason, so let me just do hundred k to you? Yeah, but, because I was in government and Congress. Come on. I mean, it's yeah, just absolutely yeah. stunning. All right, I got to move on here before we run out of time because I want to get your – your take on what's going on uh, with the SCOTUS nominee and what is the latest from your perspective? Well, let, let me let me start with I'm, I'm voting against Judge Jackson at this point, not because she's a mean person. I've actually met with her last week. She's incredibly nice. She's someone you'd want to invite over for dinner to be able to visit with. She's just not someone that I'd want to have as a lifetime appointment on the Supreme Court. Uh, the schedule of what's actually happening, it'll come before the committee actually starting today where the committee is going to walk through that. It'll be a, a series of procedural votes tonight, tomorrow, and then on Thursday, and it could be final passage as soon as Thursday. Every single Democrat has already come out and said they're going to support Judge Jackson to become Justice Jackson uh, in the days ahead. So there's no way that we can stop it at this point, the same way Democrats couldn't stop three really good Trump nominees from moving through because Republicans were on board to be able to move them through. So we can't stop it, but we can expose here are the issues, here are the problems. We can talk about sentencing. We can talk about the uh, our differences in the power of the executive branch and basic things like deference, how much power the executive branch can take, which was a big issue there. Uh, but we're going to walk through this painful process all this week. The uh, I thought Senator Marsha Blackburn asked a really simple question. So unfair. Her question was so unfair. That's a that's a total <laughs> trick question, Jason. I don't know what you're saying. What What's a woman? That's a total trick question, clearly. Uh, let's listen to Senator Blackburn clip 24. It was a defining moment for, yes. for the left. It shows you that she could not, would not, make that definition because she didn't want to offend those yes. that are supporting her, this woke agenda. But they're willing to throw women to the side for their progressive woke agenda. That's exactly. where the left, the progressives, have, got, have gotten. I, I think she's right on that. And I think actually um, the judge, when she said, I'm not a biologist, but that actually, <laughs> it is about biology, isn't it? It is about biology. Ironically, she stumbled right into the exact right issue. It's basic biology, basic anatomy uh, that any sixth grader could actually get right in that point. And that, that's the difficulty. I, I had the same conversation with Javier Becerra last year when he presented his budget. And I asked him in the budget hearing, what's a birthing person? Because in the HHS budget, it says birthing person. 
And I was like, in Oklahoma, we call those moms. Do, do, in, in D.C., do they not call those moms? They call those birthing persons? What, what, what is birthing person? And Javier Becerra was just all over the place, couldn't figure out how to define birthing person and what it is. This is the crazy far left in this that's driving America crazy right now uh, because they won't just state the obvious that everyone actually sees and knows uh, because they have their own agenda. And it does affect girls. I'm, I'm a dad of two daughters. My daughters ran cross country. Uh, we've got situations now where state champions in, in girls cross country and track are being run by, uh, won by biological males. That matters to girls who are running and competing. We're with uh, Senator James Lankford of Oklahoma. Senator, thanks for your good work there in the United States Senate. Thanks for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. We really do appreciate it. Thanks again. We appreciate it, and good luck to you, Senator James Lankford. Thank you. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I want every mother of every Russian soldier to see the bodies of dead people in Bucha, Irpin, and Hostomel. What did they do? Why were they killed? What did a man who rode a bicycle down the street do? Why did you try to kill ordinary peaceful people in an ordinary peaceful city? What did the Ukrainian city of Bucha do to Russia? How did all of this become possible? That is a uh, translation of the Ukrainian president, uh, Zelensky, um, in a message to the Russian mothers uh, after the massacre that they witnessed there in Ukraine. Absolutely horrific. Uh, we're, we're thrilled to have on the phone with us uh, somebody who's actually been in the theater there in uh, Ukraine. He's now actually in Hungary. But the former governor of the great state of New York, uh, Governor Pataki, has been there helping to facilitate the aid relief uh governor pataki thanks so much for joining us on the brian kilmeade show uh thank you jason great being on with you please tell us uh from your first-hand account what were you seeing what was happening um and what's the atmosphere like there in ukraine where you were able to get to well first let me say i was in western ukraine and uh it's it's not where the the heart of the war is being fought but you know, we hear reports, we meet with the officials, and it's just uh, incredible to see the bravery of the Ukrainian armed forces and the, the Home Guard and what they're doing. But what I hear over and over, we met with the first deputy of uh, President Zelensky yesterday in Kiev, uh, not in Kiev, in Ukraine, and he, he said what everyone else has said. They need weapons. They need to be able to protect the skies. They understand that the West is not going to create a no-sky zone, but they want the weapons to be able to protect themselves. The S-300s that Western countries have that they could give to them, the MiGs uh, that Poland actually said they would give to them, but they haven't gotten American permission. So, you know, they're diplomatic with Americans. They're thankful for the aid they've gotten, but they're just really, to be, to be honest, shocked about the things they haven't gotten that is in the, the arsenal of the West that wouldn't mean NATO or the U.S. Uh, going up against Russia, but would allow them to protect themselves. And that's what they need, and that's what we have to try to convince the Biden administration to let happen. Well, there were some promises of some lethal aid that was going to flow, but uh, the uh, the allegation is, uh, the, the word is, that the, some of the things that were promised and that were being assured to get to Ukraine weren't actually flowing into Ukraine. And it sounds like that's what you're hearing from the people on the ground as well. Well, they're very grateful, as I said. You know, they're thankful for the weapons they have gotten, but they're frustrated by what they haven't. 
And, you know, you hear the announcements of all this massive flowing of aid, uh, and there's a big difference between an announcement and having it happen. Uh, and the Ukrainians are just desperate for more help. You know, they, they stopped the Russian advance, which was incredible. Uh, and I don't think the Biden administration or many in the West thought they could do that. But now they're being bombarded from the sea and from the air constantly, and they can't protect themselves, particularly at night. They need more from us. That's the message we constantly receive. The weapons are there, the surface-to-air missiles that the Soviet Union made that uh, former Warsaw Pact countries are willing to give them, but they haven't been allowed to yet. The MiGs that Poland has been willing to transfer, but haven't been allowed to yet. Uh, plus just ordinary weapons like javelins and uh, the other weapons that they need on the ground. So, so they're really begging for help. The war has gone on a long time. They've suffered tremendous losses, and they need this help. You know, I, I when you saw what it was 130,000 troops amassed on the border with Ukraine and that and then all of a sudden uh, the, 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 you know, Vladimir Putin announced uh, this special um, attack or whatever words he used. I, it just seemed like it was just going to be a few days that would blow through Ukraine. They would take over the capital city that Zelensky would be probably killed and that they would come sweeping in and take over this country. But that is not the case. And uh, what's your perspective as to why that hasn't happened? Well, I think the, the, the strength of the Ukrainian people has been phenomenal. Uh, and it's from every walk of life. You know, uh, we were in the state capital of the Zakaparzia province, which hasn't been directly attacked. But you go into the capital building, and there are uh, soldiers with uh, automatic weapons behind massive barricades of uh, uh, sandbags, you know, because they don't know that they're not going to be attacked. But the resiliency, the strength of the people from every walk of life is just incredible. And we've been providing humanitarian aid, and we've met with hundreds of thousands of refugees. And, and they're not uh, begging for help for themselves. They're asking for help for their husbands, for their sons, for their, their loved ones who are still back in eastern Ukraine fighting. And it's that type of understanding that this is an existential fight. And everyone in Ukraine, from the oldest to the youngest, have got to do everything they can to help. That has allowed them to get this far. But for them to actually end this war uh, and send Putin home, they need more help from the United States. It's A lot of it's been pledged. They haven't seen it. And hopefully they'll be getting it sooner rather than later. We're talking with uh, a former governor of New York, uh, Governor Pataki. Governor, tell me uh, about the human toll, because it's hard to fathom. It's hard to imagine what it's like for millions of people who literally in the cold, it's been cold there in Ukraine, uh, to just take what they can carry uh, mothers with young children, uh, elderly people, and then try to make their way to somewhere like uh, a Romania or Hungary or uh, Poland, who's taken, I believe, the bulk of the refugees. But what did you see? What What's the feeling about the refugee and the human toll that's going on with the people that are just trying to stay out of harm's way? Well, I'll tell you, on the one hand, it's uplifting because the spirit of the people helping is just incredible. We had it in uh, English language teacher uh, go with us into Ukraine yesterday, and he teaches high school English. 
he himself, with a couple of his friends, had made a thousand sandwiches to help feed the refugees. We went to a, a refugee center in Ukraine, in Zakopartia, uh, and the spirit of the refugees is phenomenal. They're 95 percent women and children. You don't see any males. Uh, the children are a little uh, shell-shocked, but they're young. You know, you give them toys, you give them candy, you give them a place to sleep, uh, and and uh, they're okay. And the mothers are all saying, you know, we'll be okay send arms. We need to help our husbands. They're still back there fighting, or their fathers, or their sons. Uh, the the outflow of compassionate support is phenomenal. Uh, we've been cr- different border crossings and into Ukraine, and food and medical supplies and clothing and beds uh, is just flowing, but not from the U.S. government, not from uh, NATO. It's flowing from citizens, uh, volunteers, people making donations. You know, in our Small little organization has sent in 70 tons of food and a couple of truckloads of medical supplies and other things. And yesterday we built the first of 20 temporary housing units uh, that are just badly needed. Uh, we were in one factory, a closed factory where 200 families are living uh, in beds and cots uh, on the on the factory floor. Uh, and that's where we're building this temporary housing unit so that they can have private space where it's warm and lit and uh, not have to be just on this factory floor with uh, hundreds of other people. But, you know, what we constantly hear is, uh, you know, we'll survive. We'll get by. Help us win this war. You need to help our sons. You need to help our husbands. And and uh, I think we have to do both. From our center, we're doing the, the humanitarian relief. We're going to continue to do the best we can. But from the government side, they just need to do far more quicker and better to help the, with the wil- military struggle. And please, um, if you want to give a, a pitch to, to how people can help and what your organization is, I don't know if there's a website or something you've got on the tip of your tongue, but w- what is that organization? Yeah, Jason, we do. It's just uh, the George Pataki Center, uh, uh, georgepatakicenter.com, georgepatakicenter.com, and we have a Ukrainian relief fund. We've raised almost a million dollars, and uh, we're here on the ground because we're going to make sure every nickel of it goes to help Ukrainians, uh, and it isn't an overhead or lost somewhere. And we visited uh, just uh, about an hour ago a warehouse in Hungary where uh, they have uh, uh, food and clothing and mattresses and other things just donated by ordinary citizens, and that's how we've gotten our 70 tons of food in, and they desperately need help, and to the extent we get any funds at all, it's going to all go to, to charitable organizations like this that will bring the humanitarian aid into Ukraine, into the refugees. And Jason, you talked about the people who have left Ukraine. There's over 5 million refugees, but there are almost 10 million who haven't left, who are displaced hmm. within Ukraine. And, and that's who we're doing our best to try to help with the limited resources we have. Yeah, the people from the eastern part of the country moving to the western part of the country. And again, same situation, not having the resources and whatnot. I, I have a, a, a question of curiosity. Um, you know, a lot of military operations, when they move in, they, they, they seek to get rid of the, uh, the ability to transfer electricity, to cut off the power, cut off the communications. But Elon Musk and Starlink, which... Uh, was, you know, an effort to continue to provide the Ukrainians with the ability to communicate. Is that happening? I mean, it seems like Ah, most of the Ukrainians are able to communicate and talk. 
Jason, I am so glad you raised that point because we heard that over and over because uh, everyone was able to communicate across Ukraine and from Ukraine to the West. And uh, the name Elon Musk, Starlink, you hear it constantly, and they are just so grateful. Even, you know, in the capital of the, the oblast we were in with the, the, the general, uh, who also happens to be the governor because they're in a state of military uh, uh action. Uh, and and uh, uh, President Zelensky's first deputy, who we met with, were both saying Starlink has been a godsend to the country. So, so I'm glad you mentioned it. What Elon Musk has done is phenomenal. The people of Ukraine are grateful and the people of America should be grateful. Yeah, I mean, that, that really is one of the tactics is to cut off the communication, shut down the energy, cut off all these supplies and for Elon Musk and really a, an offshoot of SpaceX to come up with this innovative way to allow people to access the internet and be able to communicate with their mobile phones and whatnot. I just got to drive Vladimir Putin just absolutely nuts. It's got, it should drive him nuts and rightfully <laughs> so, but I'll just give you one example, Jason. We were with three little kids and their mother, they were from Kharkiv. They were in this shelter at the factory in the, uh, in Western Ukraine. Uh, we brought an Xbox and a TV uh, because they have nothing to do. They just uh, it's very cold. Uh, maybe they'll have a book or play with a couple of the other kids, uh, and they're able to hook up by way of Starlink. So it's not just helping Ukraine militarily and from a government standpoint. We can do things like help little kids get through this crisis because of it. So it's truly a godsend, uh, and uh, all Americans should be proud of what Elon has done. Well, look, the, uh, the, the war is not over. There are millions of people who will be affected for a long, long time. I, I hope America doesn't lose interest. You know, at some point, it, you know, you kind of say, oh, I've seen that, I've seen that. But the human toll is very real. And for my own little soapbox, I hope we also pay attention to the wars that are being fought. You know, what's going on in Ethiopia? What's going on in uh, the Congo? There are a lot of people, millions of them, in fact, that are displaced and have been harmed and hurt and and maimed. And I, I worry that, yeah, we pay attention when it's Europe, but when it's Africa or some other part of the world where we don't have as many cameras, we don't pay as much attention. But that's just Jason Chaffetz on his little soapbox here. But Governor Pataki, I can't thank you enough for you and your organization. Again, what's that website that you're the governor? George Pataki Center, com, Ukrainian Relief Fund. Every nickel will go to help the refugees and help them get through this crisis. And, Jason, I'm glad you also mentioned uh, Africa. You know, I, I was with, uh, did an event with the head of the World Food Organization, David Beasley, on Tuesday. 85% of the grain that, that goes to Egypt comes from Ukraine. It's going to be a brutal year globally. So uh, every, anything people can do to help uh, during this crisis, as you said, Americans shouldn't lose sight of this. Uh, and the Ukrainians aren't just fighting their own war. They're fighting our war. This is really civilization against barbarism. And the civilized side, the Ukrainians, need to win this. Well said. Uh, and, Governor, thanks for getting out there and doing it yourself and making good things happening and, uh, and affecting so many people. And, and thanks for joining us on The Brian Kilmeade Show. We'll be back right after this. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. Breaking news. Unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. 
Hey, this is Jason Chaffetz. Uh, so thankful for Brian to allow me to sit in his chair yet again. I do appreciate it. I want to kind of give my hot take on uh, on a few different topics in the few minutes we have before the top of the hour. Uh, look, this whole idea of locking down the border, it's one of the core things the United States of America should do. The, the sea change and the difference between where Trump had this and versus where Biden and Harris have taken this is absolutely it's just a catastrophe. It's human trafficking. It's drug tra- drug trafficking. It is a human toll that is just untenable. It, it is not right. We are failing the very people who we should be helping, and that is the people who should be who are coming here legally and lawfully. We're failing them, and what we're doing at the border. I hope people pay attention because we're talking about millions of people in human trafficking, drug trafficking, and it is just wrong. In New York. Unmask the toddlers. This is absolutely ridiculous. At this point where we're at with COVID, we learned a long time ago that toddlers are not the ones that are the conduit to getting people uh, to passing on COVID. They're not the ones that are going to be in the hospital. And the idea that a six-year-old doesn't have to wear a mask, but the four-year-old does have to wear a mask is absolutely ridiculous. And for for the uh, FDA and for the, the Centers for Disease Control and the powers that be there within Health and Human Services to authorize yet another booster shot without the outside group of scientists that are supposed to look at these things to bypass that, as I've heard uh, some of these doctors um, talk about, is just fundamentally wrong. A big shout out to Elon Musk and what we heard from Governor Pataki and what's going on at the uh, there in Ukraine. Starlink making a huge, massive difference in this fight and this war in Ukraine. Innovative American technology through SpaceX, getting the Internet and allowing the people of Ukraine to communicate hats off. And I'm fascinated that now the largest shareholder of Twitter is Elon Musk. New report out that he has got close to a $3 billion worth of Twitter. He's been highly critical of Twitter, but it's going to be fascinating to see where Elon Musk takes Twitter in the effort to put forward free speech. My guess is probably not going to take down the tweets of the largest shareholder, but we'll see. We never know. But he actually owns more than Jack Dorsey um, and uh, he's the largest shareholder right now. Pay attention to the budget. Democrats want to increase taxes by the record amount, but make no mistake about it. The House and the Senate have introduced no budget. They're not going to do anything like that. They are actually going to just do a continuing resolution or something similar to that, an omnibus. Since the 1974 Budget Act, only one time in the history of our nation has has it actually gone through what's called regular order in the way it's supposed to. It's what's fundamentally wrong about how the government's working. Disney, pay attention to your shareholders. Stop offending everybody. Get out of the business of politics and get into the business of just entertaining kids and making it the happy place, happiest place on earth. If you want to be the happiest place on earth, don't engage in politics and stop talking about things that you actually have no idea and misrepresenting bills and whatnot. Congratulations to the South Carolina, uh, the uh, women of South Carolina who won the hoops. But shame, shame on you for not standing and saluting and paying attention to the flag of the United States of America. Stop cowering behind and sitting in the locker room. Big game tonight, uh, KU in North Carolina and the Masters. Tiger Woods, will he make a comeback? I don't know, but it's going to be fascinating to watch the world of sports. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Thanks for joining us. 
from the Fox News Radio studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Almost, Brian Kilmeade. This is Jason Chaffetz. I'm filling in for Brian. Brian's like the hardest working guy in television and radio. Unbelievable how much time and effort he puts in it, except today. I think he's out there working on that uh, that suntan, and good for him because uh, he's like working all the time, every day. I I see him and hear him, and and uh, I really do enjoy. It. Just honored that uh, I could be uh, here to, to fill in for him. A uh, lot of crazy things happening out there in the news, but uh, one of the craziest things out there is this Hunter Biden story. Something we've been following for more than a year, although some people are just playing catch up, and so. We're thrilled to have uh, Michael Goodwin uh, joining us on the line. He's a New York Post uh, columnist. He's a Fox News contributor, and he's got a new post up that he put up uh, there at the New York Post. Uh, Joe Biden flying too close to the sun, S-O-N. Very clever. Michael Goodwin, thanks for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. My pleasure, Jason. Thank you. Uh, It's a great – I tell you, the New York Post in general, uh, they're – front page is just I it got a smile because I can only imagine what you what you or whoever the editor is that deals with the front page of that paper it always makes me smile it's always the most creative and I can only imagine what doesn't actually make it but this uh this headline Joe Biden flying too close to the sun son I think you hit it right on the head because this is an explosive story well, thank you. Uh, I wish I could take credit for the headline, but um, I only write the bad headlines. I don't write the good <laughs> ones. <laughs> All right. Well, there have been some bad ones, too. So you obviously have been doing your work. Um, but, you know, it's it's amazing to me how the so-called traditional national media, it's just now giving some credence to what was Russian disinformation and so bad that we can't ever even expose it on Twitter to now saying, well, yeah, that, that laptop might be real. Well, uh, that's true. It, 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 they did do an about-face, but I think there's another step in the process, and that is um, the question of Joe Biden himself. And there's where I think it, they're back to their old tricks. Um, one way to read the coverage of, the, say, the New York Times, the Washington Post, both of them – I think, are going the extra mile to protect Joe Biden. As I say in the column, you could read this as repositioning themselves for a new fight. They've given up Hunter. They're willing to let Hunter go. But darn it, there's nothing here that uh, has any bearing on Joe Biden's conduct. I mean, that's the new defense line. Uh, And that's what you're seeing all over the media. And, of course, that's not true. There's lots in there that bears directly on Joe Biden's involvement and implicates him in his son's scheme. So if Hunter Biden did something wrong in terms of peddling the family name to foreign uh, uh, governments and foreign uh, oligarchs, then Joe Biden is not innocent of that because the emails and photo uh, things that are on the laptop show Joe Biden helping further Hunter's businesses by meeting with his uh, 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 
partners, by meeting with his foreign paymasters. Joe Biden is in this up to his neck. And, of course, Tony Bobolinsky said Joe Biden was the big guy who was slated to get a secret 10 percent stake in a venture that was being negotiated and worked out while he was vice president, but would not be taking effect until after he left the White House. This would have been in 2017. It's when Bob Alinsky met with Joe Biden. And when he was the CEO of this venture, Joe Biden knew all about it, according to Bobolinsky, and told Bobolinsky, take good care of my family. I mean, this was a family business. We should never forget that. And so I think the challenge now is how is the media preparing to defend Joe Biden, even if it tosses Hunter to the wolves? And I think we can get another clue of that from the New York Times piece, that essentially they they are pushing for Hunter not to be indicted, but to be charged only with civil violations. That would that that would mean no no finding by a grand jury of reason to indict him, no charging papers that would lay out the case against him, which I think would inevitably have to mention Joe Biden. Uh, And so I think a civil case is the way that the media will now push this. We had Ron Klain, the chief of staff on television yesterday, saying the president thinks his son did nothing wrong, broke no laws. That is a direct message to Merrick Garland, lay off. This is not a criminal case. Go prosecute Donald Trump, but leave my son alone. That's yeah, what I think we're watching. Yeah, let, let's play that clip. This is uh, Ron Klain on ABC This Week, uh, clip 19. The president is confident that his uh, family did the right thing. But again, I want to just be really clear. These are actions by uh, Hunter and his brother. They're private matters. They don't involve the president. And they certainly are something that no one at the White House is involved in. Yeah, that was pretty direct. Miranda Devine, also a columnist there at the New York Post, has throwing Hunter bus Hunter Biden under the bus won't be enough to clear Joe. But I think the signal is clear, and it's just as you said. Uh, go ahead if you have to. Uh, go after Hunter Biden, but uh, don't you dare touch the president. Yeah, but I think it's even stronger than that, Jason. I, th- I think that uh, there's an earlier remark that Klain made in the same interview where he says, uh, Stephanopoulos asked, is the president confident that Hunter Biden broke no laws? And he said, yes, the president is very confident his son broke no laws. Uh, that, to me, is a direct message to Merrick Garland, to the, the attorney general, just as is the, another New York Times piece on this question of whether Donald Trump should be prosecuted for January 6th. There you have the New York Times reporting with anonymous sources, of course, that Joe Biden has said privately he believes Donald Trump should be prosecuted, but he has never communicated this directly to the attorney general. Well, he doesn't have to, right? It's in the New York Times. He doesn't have to tell Merrick Garland. The New York Times just told Merrick Garland, just as Ron Klain didn't speak to uh, Merrick Garland about Hunter Biden. He just spoke to ABC News. I mean, this to me is, is the jungle grapevine. This is how they're getting the word out as to what the president wants and what he doesn't want. He wants Donald Trump prosecuted. He doesn't want 
Hunter Biden prosecuted. Got that, Merrick Garland? Those are your marching orders. Yeah, uh, you know, this the, the president has said of Hunter Biden, his son, and, you know, there's it's his son, but is the smartest person he's ever met. Uh, the number of salacious photos and, and compromising positions is just absolutely stunning. But set that aside. You know, Peter Schweitzer, who I've done some work with uh, and continue to do, um, has said that he has documented over $30 million that he believes has, flown, uh, has flowed from China and the state-associated uh, organizations to Hunter Biden and the organizations that he's affiliated with. I think the, the writings of Hunter Biden, if the laptop is true, it's just very clear on what was going on in Mexico and what was going on in Romania. I, I keep repeating myself because I never hear and read these stories very often. But, you know, what he did in working with Louis Free, the former FBI director, who is telling Hunter Biden that he's talking to the senior most FBI officials there at the D- Department of Justice and then s- about this uh, this thug in Romania and then putting $100,000 into the account of Joe Biden's grandkids. I, I mean, as a thank you for the business that they gave them, I don't know. I mean, there's a money trail. There's implications for the president and Hunter Biden. I don't know how you just dismiss that and say, well, the president was, you know, he had no idea. Right. And, and uh, you know, in the, in the, on the laptop, there are emails, again, shown um, by the Post and, and by uh, Senators Johnson and Grassley that uh, another partner in the venture talks about shifting money between Joe's accounts and Hunter's accounts. He says, you know, Joe's tax return came back. I I put that in your account, and then I wrote a check to him uh, from your account for the same amount. Well, I mean, it was such a casual thing. And then, of course, you have the Hunter email in which he says to his daughter, I won't make you give me half of your salary the the way Pop does me. And he says, I've been paying for this family for 30 years. So the, the co-mingling of Hunter Biden's income from China made possible by his father's official positions. And look, we have not had any evidence of his father saying a word about his son to any of these foreign people. But do we believe his father has never said a word to the premier of China? Or, or to any of these other people he's met around the world about his son's business? Has he been that disciplined? Because he's been very sloppy uh, on the other end of it. We know all of this. I mean, the, Jim Biden got these Iraqi housing contracts. I mean, this is a crime family in many regards. And I think the evidence is out there. But we, I'm, I'm afraid we are going not going to find it as long as Merrick Garland is the attorney general. Well, as Brett Tolman, the former U.S. attorney here in the state of Utah, uh, has said, hey, anybody else, these indictments would have already flowed right. a long, long time ago. Um, and, and you're right that the number of times, I mean, look at Joe Biden's living in that 
McMansion or whatever you want to call it in Delaware, but he's been in, on a government salary for 40, 50 years, something like that. And granted, he wrote a book and whatnot, but how did he pay for all that? I mean, Peter Schweitzer has documented how Hunter Biden paid for Joe Biden's burner phone so that he could call into China. Um, there, there have got to be um, records of that out there. And Hunter Biden was flying on Air Force Two with dad and meetings were arranged. Handshakes were given. A lot of times it's just, hey, I need you to come step in and do this photo. But in the case of the Mexican officials, it, Hunter Biden complains to this person in Mexico. I brought you to the White House. I've got you every meeting that you had. I brought you to go meet my dad. You've been to the to the uh, um, uh, Naval Observatory and to our house. You've you've done everything. You've had the meetings with my dad that you had to have. Would are we supposed to pretend that Joe Biden was just oblivious to all that? He said he never, ever had a conversation with his son. And then the pictures Tucker Carlson put out with the pictures with the golf buddies and, you know, playing a round of golf. It's I think there's enough direct evidence there to show the flow of money and the contacts and the communications. Do politicians lie? Yes. But is there enough there to say that as the as the vice president of the United States, they were misappropriating and misusing funds to ingratiate and and uh, fund the Biden family? Yeah, I do. I think it's already there at black and white. I, I tend to agree with you. I, I think what we know is certainly enough to say that he was he did have some role that it's obviously a lie when he says he never discussed his son's business with him i mean the, the, uh, the as you mentioned the 2013 trip on air force 2 to china and hunter comes back with uh, a 1.5 billion dollar investment uh from a chinese bank uh to say that joe biden never said to him son what are you doing on my plane why are you going to china what, what are you here for and because they met. He met some of the people Hunter was going to see on that trip. So the question is, Jason, how do we how do we get this information? How do we clarify what really Joe Biden's role was? And I that's why I think that in the end this will not become a criminal matter for Hunter Biden. It will become a civil matter. If there is a criminal matter, it'll be done quietly and there'll be a plea agreement. Uh, There will not be an indictment. There will not be any public proceedings where there is uh, an exploration of his entanglements, of Joe Biden's role in all of this, uh, because I think it would it would destroy the presidency. And Merrick Garland, the the Democratic Party, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, they are not going to let that happen. They will move hell and high water, and Merrick Garland will be run over and run out of town if he should uh, object, which I don't think he will. I, I think he's going to be on board. We're going to prosecute Donald Trump, and we're going to exonerate Hunter Biden. I think that's the playbook that's going to unfold. Well, that justice will be worse for it if they don't go after Hunter Biden and the greater, broader um, Biden family because they have been using the resources of the United States inappropriately and against the law in order to fund their family. And I just think it's wrong. Um, Michael Goodwin, I've got to go. But Michael Goodwin, uh, Fox News contributor and columnist there with uh, The New York Post. Thanks for joining us today on The Brian Kilmeade Show. My pleasure. Thank you, Jason. We'll be right back.
It's Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. From my perspective, uh, President Biden is doing uh, a very good job. I think that his handling of Ukraine, uh, passing the American Rescue Package, the huge infrastructure package. I'm not quite sure what the disconnect is between the accomplishments of the administration and this Congress and the understanding of what's been done and the impact it will have on the American public and some of the, you know, the polling and the ongoing hand-wringing. Uh, I've always thought that uh, the best politics is uh, doing the best job you can do, and there's a lot that Democrats can talk about in this upcoming mm-hmm. midterms. Well, that's uh, former Senator, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and you'll be shocked to learn that I actually disagree with her on this particular point. The idea that Joe Biden's doing a great job. I think the Democrats have been able to pass and implement their policies. Uh, I agree with her on that part. But the consequence of that is, look at where we're at as a nation. We are less safe and secure. Crime is on the rise. The border is not secure. Inflation's out of control. These are all a consequence when you go to, for instance, fill up your tank of gas These are consequence of the fact that the Democrats implemented their policies. So, yes, she's right. Wow, we passed all this stuff. We did get what we wanted. But the result has been horrific for the average American. That's why there's going to be a sea change. So when Democrats look about and say, wait, why don't they like us uh, better? It's because the Democrats actually lurched to the left, instituted these left-leaning policies, and the country's worse worse for it. Domestically, economically, foreign policy, Democrats did what they wanted to do. Afghanistan, we can't forget about that. That's why Hillary Clinton is wrong in this instance. Yeah, they passed the things, but the consequences were bad. I'm Jason Chaffetz, filling in for Brian Kilmeade. Stick with us. we got a lot more to the show, a lot more to talk about. Stick with us. We'll be right back after this. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. We all felt this long before Ukraine popped up on the radar scope, long before Putin invaded Ukraine. We were paying higher gas prices. Uh, Inflation uh, got uh, kicked off uh, in a real fashion last year, and the administration uh, said it was just going to be transitory. And a year later, we're finding out it ain't. So, no, uh, that's poor messaging and ain't going to work. So that was Carl Rove talking to Trey Gowdy on Sunday Night in America uh, uh, last night. Carl Rove's uh, one of the smarter people on the planet and uh, has a grasp on things. But I think factually, he's just kind of laying it out there and telling it like it is. Um, but uh, let's get the opinion of somebody who really does know what he's talking about when it comes to business and the economy. Uh, Andy Puzder is a uh, former CKE Restaurants CEO and a Heritage Foundation visiting fellow. Uh, Andy, thank you so much for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. I appreciate you joining us. Uh, great to be here, Jason. Great to hear your voice. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about the reality of inflation um, because – really on day one uh even before that uh joe biden kamala harris they foreshadowed what they were going to do to the economy to help shut down the energy sector to 
essentially drive prices higher and you couple that with massive government spending and voila we're surprised we go to the pump and it's you know the prices are you know north of four bucks a gallon some places five and six dollars a gallon yeah nobody should be surprised about this and we all knew coming out of the recession that we were going to have juiced up demand everybody had money from all these the stimulus spending we did to keep the economy going during the pandemic uh, and we knew that we wouldn't have uh, th- that the supply wouldn't be there because people hadn't been working. Anybody who tried to order anything during the pandemic was finding that they were having a difficult time getting it because people weren't out there manufacturing goods or delivering goods any more than they absolutely had to. So the one thing you wouldn't have done, and what Larry Summers, Jason Furman, you know, Steve Ratner, all economists uh, from the Obama and Clinton eras. Uh, said, you, you know, what, the one thing you don't want to do is spend another $1.9 trillion, which is exactly what the Democrats and President Biden did last March. And e- even compared to European nations, it really doesn't matter what you compare it to. Our, our inflation just shoots up after that money is spent. It really was pouring gas on a, a fire that was already burning where we should have been uh, no longer handing out federal funds. We should have been encouraging people to get back to work and we should have been encouraging businesses to manufacture goods, to get the goods out there so that supply could meet demand. And you do that by reducing regulation, reducing taxes, focusing on domestic energy production. In other words, Biden and his his administration did everything that was exactly the opposite of what they should have done and what even uh, Democrat economists were telling them to do. Well, that sounds all too reasonable. You, 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 said, you know, you take two minutes and lay it out like that. That just sounds too rational. Like, I, I want people to understand how big a trillion is because I was once, uh, you know, I once upon a time was in Congress and I was talking to high schoolers and answering questions from high schoolers is about the toughest audience because they ask direct pointed questions. And this one girl, she said, you know, so the deficit or the debt is trillions of dollars. What does that mean to me? And I said, well, first of all, let's put into to play what a trillion dollars means. If you spend a million dollars a day every day, it'd take you almost 3,000 years to get to one trillion. And now the number at the, at the time it was less. But I said, now it, the debt is 30 trillion dollars but we pay interest on that debt and that started to be something that people could grasp but nearly a billion dollars a day in interest payments when our interest rate is down near zero that has some real consequences but for the if you were talking at a high school class how would you answer that oh boy that'd be a tough question i i would say a trillion dollars is an unfathomable amount Right. And you can and when you multiply that, probably when you were talking to the kids, the debt was probably, I don't know, 15 to 20 trillion. You know, now we're approaching uh, 30 trillion. It, th- this is 20 or 30 times uh, times an unfathomable amount so that you're really in territory that nobody's ever been in before. And the only reason we can do this is because we can print dollars. But dollars are just paper and they're only meaningful as long as the world uh, respects them as something of value based on the American economy. Uh, and if the economy keeps going in the direction that it's going, that's not going to be a very long period of time. The, the rest of the world is going to come around and say, look, the United States can't pay these debts. They're just printing a bunch of money out there. We, you know, we, need, we need to get focused on something else that's more reliable. So we're, the, the Biden administration is putting us in a, in, a, in a horrific position. Can you imagine? I, I, you know, Jason, you and I, we ran into each other, I think it was just before the pandemic here in one right, of the green right. rooms. And we were talking about how great the economy was. Could you imagine – 
that literally a year, what, a year, 14 months, 13 months after President Biden's inaugurated, we're talking, legitimately talking about the potential for World War III, world famine. Some people are talking about oil getting to $200 a barrel. Look, it's time to change course. The Biden administration needs to change course, and they need to change it now, or it's going to be very, very difficult for this country to recover. I think if they were here, they'd say, no, we campaigned on this. You know, one of the lessons that I... I learned, I used once upon a time was the chief of staff to the governor of Utah and had to deal with these environmentalists who really wanted to lock up all of our energy production. And uh, there came this seminal moment, this kind of aha moment that I I came to when the Democrats said, look, we want it because I I was complaining that the speed limit needed to increase. We need to do certain things, the highways to get rid of the congestion, less congestion, less, less pollution, you know thought that was a good argument for the Democrats. And they said, no, 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 Jason, we want it to be more painful. We don't want you to drive. We want you to walk. And so if the economics are such that the price of gas is so high, you'll drive less. And I guess on an economic standpoint, they're right. You will drive less because you're forced to drive less. But, you know, the White House will conveniently say, oh, well, it's Putin, Putin, Putin. It was his fault the gas is so high. And, oh, oh, let's tap into the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to offer some relief. Look at all the things we're doing. That's not really what they're doing. They purposely wanted the price of gasoline to go up because they wanted to implement the Green New Deal. And one of the mistakes I think a lot of politicians make, and and I know you're aware of this, is that uh, they assume that whatever their favorite issue was, that's why they got elected. And if your favorite issue right. was was climate change, if your favorite issue was we're going to cut back on oil production uh, and you're a Democrat, I got I got news for you. That's not why Joe Biden got elected president. Joe Biden got elected right. president for a number of reasons. That wasn't one of them. And if you want to know how well that's going to work out in November, just ask people standing in the gas station how they feel about Joe Biden while they're filling up their gas tanks. That That's a constant reminder every day of the failed policies of this administration and th- this releasing, you know, he wants, they literally want people here in the United States to believe that they're fighting, they're fighting uh, carbon emissions. They're trying to get to net neutrality by a certain year. And then they go around the world trying to buy oil to, to satisfy the needs here in the United States. Releasing the strategic petroleum reserve was, was, it was really, it was useless. If you were Saudi Arabia or Venezuela or Russia all you've got to do to keep the price up and compensate for that uh, th- that million uh, barrels a day being released for three months is cut back on your production. You cut back on production, energy prices aren't going to change a whole lot. And in three months, not only are you going to be selling as much oil as you were selling before this release at a, at a continuing high price, uh, but the United States is at some point going to have to replenish those reserves and they're going to have to end up buying more oil. So this 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 is a policy that, as as so many policies that have been inaugurated in this administration, this was a policy that was simply wrongheaded. Didn't realize, don't didn't have any grasp on how businesses actually operate, how their policies might affect the price of anything, the cost to the American people. If you want to get back to the economy we had prior to the pandemic, implement the policies that we had prior to the pandemic: cut taxes, cut regulation, and focus on domestic energy production. President Trump did it. It was very successful. If you want to get back to it, do it again. Yeah. If you actually did want to secure the border, Mr. President, then secure the border. I mean, it's not like rocket science here. I mean, same thing with the economy, but that's not really what they wanted to do. And your point, I think, is spot on. I never heard 
I've never heard it with the clarity that you just offered it, that when you win an election, you think it's because of the number one thing you thought of. But it's really not. And I think that's I think that's spot on. If the, if America really wanted to go after the Green New Deal, uh, you know, Elizabeth Warren or or Senator Markey out of out of Massachusetts would be the president. That's not what it's happening here. But they they kept telling America that, uh, yeah, this Green New Deal, we have to do it. And that the biggest threat to to world safety and security is climate change. And look, I, I'm if you want to deal and take care of the consequences of a ever evolving climate. I understand that what you throw into the air and into the water, it matters. And, and, and we should be cognizant of that. And we should make sure we do our part to, to not put the dirty stuff out there. But if you're not also going to deal with China and Iran and all these other dirty players out there, you're really not going to make the difference. No, you're not. And I, and I think, you know, you raise a good point here which I think everybody should know. Look, conservatives don't want dirty air and dirty water. I mean, we all fought against that 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And in fact, the water's clean and the air is cleaner. We've managed to address those issues. But we can't walk away from our energy needs. And When you hear about these these people that are very concerned about zero carbon emissions and how important that is and we need to save the world, oh, but we're, we're opposed to nuclear energy. Uh, we right. don't like natural gas. Well, natural thanks to natural gas, the United States is the only country in the world that's even come close to reducing carbon emissions, uh, as was promised in the Paris Climate Accord. Even though we walked away from it, we reduced our carbon emissions th- thanks to our natural gas more than anybody else. And if you want nuclear energy, if you're promoting that, you know, nobody. I don't think we should be pouring excessive carbon into the atmosphere if we don't have to. Why would we do that? But to say that we're going to impoverish the world, we're going to, at least the United States, and we're going to allow China and India and these other countries just to, you know, to burn coal and everything else that puts carbon in the atmosphere and not address those issues, and we're, we're really wasting our time and we're harming the American people. And I think they know that. I think we're going to see that in November because they get reminded about it every day. And if prices decline, I got to tell you, nobody wants you know, regime change. But you, you look back in history, when there's regime change, it's because food prices shoot up. If we have famine in the world, I, you know, the problems that Biden's facing right now because of oil going down are going to be nothing compared to the problems he's going to face if people are going to the grocery store and having a reaction like they're having at the gas stations today. Yeah, between uh, famine and clean water st- uh, supply issues. Um, and and I'd, I'd love your point about nuclear uh, because if you want the cleanest energy out there, it is nuclear. And to, to walk away with that, away from that and say that's not one of the viable solutions, I, I, I just think is wrong. I think the other thing that I would hope would be on people's radar is what the Democrats are doing behind the scenes with ESGs, this environmentally sensitive governance program that they're pushing through the Federal Reserve, that they're trying to push – um, BlackRock and the others are out there implementing into these corporate governance plans. And that is a devastating effect, and it's done in a very stealthy way. But it, it, it forces banks to not give loans to energy development companies. So they can scream all they want. Jen Psaki can say, oh, go use the permits you already have. But if you can't go to the bank because their ESG plan has a prohibition on this stuff and they're going to get a bad score, guess what? You're not actually solving the problem. And they just think that America's stupid. Yeah, I'll tell you what. ESG is a lot more insidious and more dangerous than people think. 
just so make sure everybody listening knows we're talking about environmental, social justice, and corporate governance investment criteria, which guide where our money goes in this country. And because the major funds that, that invest $60 trillion in the United States invest these monies, this, this has a huge impact on where our economy goes and where our businesses go. And quite honestly, it's socialism in sheep's clothing. It's a rejection of our founding principles. It's a rejection of our representative democracy. It's a rejection of our personal liberty. It's a tool by which these, these corporate and government elites can manipulate the private sector so that they can get around the requirements of a representative democracy, which is that the policies they're pursuing have to get a popular vote, uh, and so they can get around our free market economy where consumers actually guide where the economy goes, not these people that are out there running funds like BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard. This, this is a very, very dangerous thing. It's, a, it's really a threat to our entire way of life, and to me it's the biggest threat – uh, to free market capitalism in my lifetime, and that includes communism and socialism. This is dangerous, and very few people understand just how important it is. Well, good. I, I, I hope you continue to speak out uh, uh, about it. You know, one of the things the Democrats did while I was in Congress, I, I'm, you know, I'm in the minority. I'm voting the right way, but you know, the Democrats could slam it through in the House with a simple majority, but. What they were able to do is formulate, under the direction of Elizabeth Warren, this Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It's bigger than the Security and Exchange Commission uh, with untold amount of money. And the reason it's untold is it's not funded by Congress. What they did structurally is they put it under the Federal Reserve. And by being under the Federal Reserve, it's out of the purview of the United States Congress. And, and that's where they're implementing a lot of this stuff. It's true. But, you know, now... You've got the SEC involved where they're going to require climate disclosures. So guys like, guys like Larry Fink at BlackRock uh, can, can find out which companies are complying with his yeah. mandate that they hit net neutrality by 2050 on carbon emissions. You've got the Labor Department saying, oh, we, you, we can have 401k plans that, uh, that apply ESG criteria, even though it's not in the best interest of the beneficiaries of these pension funds. Uh, it's not going to generate returns for them. It, it's okay because it's ESG. We've got the whole government working with this, these corporate elitists, these these corporate bureaucrats, uh, to really su- subvert our free market economy and our representative democracy. This is a big danger. That is. Uh, listen, we've been talking with Andy Puzder, who's the former CKE restaurant CEO and Heritage Foundation visiting fellow. Heritage Foundation, one of my favorites. Uh, thank too. you so much, Andy. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us on the Brian Kilmeade Show. We're going to be back right after Thanks, this. Jason. Don't go anywhere. Brian Kilmeade will be right back. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. You know, Brian really is uh, the hardest working guy at television radio. It's unbelievable how much he's working. But he took the day off today, so I'm Jason Chaffetz. Uh, thrilled and honored he would allow me to, to sit in for him. I've had a good uh, time for these uh, hours uh, talking about everything from Hunter Biden to the, you know, the economy and inflation and Ukraine and craziness with governor cuomo wanting to come back and title 42 and the border and masking of toddlers and the supreme court and midterms and esgs and elon musk and the good stuff that he's doing with twitter and and uh and uh starlink there in uh uh in in ukraine and 
there's so much going on, and I know our world is busy. But I hope we had also take time and just pause and have some fun, step away from politics every once in a while. Look, I'm a Fox News contributor. I love that you're listening to this show and participating and and uh, watching and and just being involved in America. Just the fact that you listen to the Brian Kilmeade show, you know, just better understanding the world uh, the world around us. But it's also good to kind of step away. I I call it that other thing. For me, when I want to get out and clear my head, I like to go out and do wildlife photography, chase bears and elk and and moose around and try to get their picture with just the right light. And I I find a lot of thrill with that. And I I find myself hours later, and then I've totally forgotten all all the woes and all the problems. We got some good basketball happening tonight between the University of Kansas and North Carolina. That's going to be a good game. It's been a good March Madness tournament. Got the Masters, seeing what Tiger Woods is going to do. A lot of good stuff going on in the world. So remember, the United States of America, it's the greatest country on the face of the planet. Despite our woes, we'll figure it out. And I know that Brian Kilmeade will be here to share his thoughts, his perspective, and bring in the guests. So thanks for listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.